Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This episode contains explicit content about sex and language that goes along with that, which is common on the Puberty Podcast. But there's just more of it in this episode. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescents, ours and theirs. We did an episode about school-age kids and talking about sex. This episode is about tweens and talking about sex. But tweens can both be school-age kids in elementary school or they can be in middle school. And so there will be some overlap, but there are also increasingly sophisticated ways that we want to talk to our tweens as they develop physically and emotionally that we might not have used or talked to them about in the school age bracket. In addition, it's important to know that by the time kids hit the end of their tweens, so like 12 or so, at least half of them will have been exposed to porn. So if for no other reason than the exposure to porn, we need to talk to our tweens about sex before they see it, inadvertently or on purpose on their screens. So Cara, let's back up and just quickly go over the things we would hope people would have covered already with their kids by the time they are tweens. So this is the part where there's a little checklist. And if you've covered these things already, fantastic, gold star. But if you haven't covered them yet, 
wonderful opportunity to jump in here as your starting point. So the first thing that we want to make sure that kids entering the tween years, 8 to 12, know are anatomical names. So those are the names of the various body parts. And when we say body parts, we're really talking about um, external reproductive organs. Now, by the end of the tween years, and we'll get into this, internal reproductive organs are also important to be able to label so that you can have really great conversations about sort of the consequences of sex. But at least at the beginning of the tween years, kids really need to understand how to label body parts in a way that other people can understand when they are talking about those body parts, because we want to make sure that kids are able to identify when they have questions or when they have concerns about a specific body part that they're communicating clearly. And I would add that as our kids enter puberty and continue to develop, they are going to have sexual feelings, desires. They might begin to have some version of an intimate relationship as they go further into middle school. And so not only should they know about uteruses and ovaries and fallopian tubes so they can understand reproduction, but they should also know not just about their vagina, but also about their vulva, their clitoris. They should know that all the parts of their body are included and some aren't left out. Because if we leave out certain language and certain terms, it does two things. One, it inadvertently confers shame on those body parts. And two, it actually teaches them or fails to teach them about parts of their body that feel good. And we want our kids to understand what parts of their body feels good or doesn't feel good when it's touched. So clitoris is a great example, right? It's not a body part that is typically taught in the early school age years. It is not first and second graders are not often coming home from school and labeling on a diagram where is the clitoris. And yet it is a really important body part. In fact, when I updated the Care and Keeping of You, the original Care and Keeping of You, one of the most important changes we made to that book was to include labeled clitoris. And it was not that they accidentally left it off the first time. It was discussed very widely through the company. And there were a lot of people who weighed in on the decision as to whether or not it should be put in there. But eventually, what we decided on the future editions was that to leave it out was to actively unlabel it. And that is not what we want to do. So by the time your kids are eight or nine, having these conversations around external body parts and then some internal body parts is going to be really important. Let's just do the, the rest of the checklist super fast, what people should have already covered with their kids before they enter the tween years. Basic consent. So understanding concepts of sharing and personal space, moving into managing feelings, touching, and almost sort of that uh, lack of boundary, right? And so in the early school age years, you want to make sure that kids have language around how to tell someone that they don't want another person in their space or on their body. And you want to be able to arm kids with language when they are the toucher or the feeler that they learn to ask if it's okay. And then the last thing that we talked about is the conversation around how babies are made as opposed to what is sex. So by the time a child is entering their tween years, they really should probably have an understanding of the very basic, basic origins of a human. So sperm, egg story. We will get into in the conversations with tweens 
how you broaden that story and start to talk about sexual intercourse. And if you want language on how to talk to younger kids about the sperm egg story, you can listen to our episode about how to talk to school-age kids about sex. It gives really specific and clear language for that. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their Umbra's. It's why we say that the Umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your Umbra, plus lots of other puberty info at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A dot com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order... Go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. 
Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Okay, Vanessa. So now let's get a little bit further into anatomical names. Let's talk about how do parents begin to help their kids label internal organs, especially if they don't know for themselves really anything more than the name. They don't haven't seen a picture since they were in school. Maybe they didn't love biology or they're of a gender that doesn't have that body part and they never really absorb the knowledge. So help us out. So one of the things that kids this age, tweens think and worry most about is menstruation, periods, getting your period, how does it work? If you're bleeding, are you dying? You know, kids who don't get periods wonder, oh, well, the people who get periods, like, are they sick? Are they in trouble? There's a lot of wondering and questioning about periods. So it's great for kids of all genders to understand the concepts of ovulation and menstruation and not just a clear concept of one way that babies are made. And all kids. Right? All kids of all genders, because even if we're not people who menstruate or will ever menstruate, we will have friendships and loving relationships with people who do menstruate and we don't want it to be stigmatized. So Cara's books, Care and Keeping of You series are wonderful. There are some other series, Ruby Harris books. Um, there's some other new books that have come out that are, you know, all wonderful, empowering. You can try a bunch, go to the library or buy them and get them delivered to your house, go through them. If you did not grow up knowing or understanding the language, the terms, the processes, the physiology, it's okay. Some of us did not grow up with this education. It's never too late to educate ourselves. And it's okay to say to our kids, hey, you know what? I actually never learned this. So we're going to learn this together. We're going to do it alongside each other. And in the end, we'll both know this really important stuff. So the talks around menstruation involve internal organs that include the uterus and the fallopian tubes 
and the ovaries. Those are the three basic internal organs in a genetically female body that are part of the menstrual cycle. And those are the three organs that your kids should probably be able to identify by the time, certainly by the time that they are done with their tween years. Most of them, we usually say by about fifth grade, they should be able to identify those. In the genetically male body, they should be able to identify testicles. And then the tubes that lead from the testicles out the end of the penis, so the vas deferens and the urethra. And then also there's a little sort of appendage on the testicle called the epididymis. And those are important structures for everyone to know about the genetic male body. And these are hard words. These are hard words to pronounce. These are hard words to remember. That's okay. It can be funny. I mean, epididymis is probably one of my top three favorite words along with Orchidometer. You love orchidometer. I do. And do you remember what ENT stands for? Uh, oh, sorry. ENT, ENT stands, stands for, stands for otolaryngology. <laughs> there we go. All right. So that's sort of the anatomy piece that you'll want to make sure your kids are aware of. The menstrual cycle is something that schools do a very good job of teaching. It's a very core part of puberty education. As Vanessa said earlier, the problem with the puberty education piece is that it tends to be really late. So a lot of puberty curricula in school are focused on fifth and sixth graders. And the average age for first period in this country is about 12 and a quarter years. So you can imagine that depending upon what the age cutoffs are for a given school, half of all sixth grade girls have gotten their periods already. It's a little too little, a little too late if you're leaning into the only the school curriculum. If you have a voice in your school community, I would strongly suggest that you advocate for earlier education around body changes, including menstruation. I think your kids are ready to learn about the information closer to fourth, certainly by fifth grade, but really closer to fourth grade. If your school's not doing it, it is really important that you do it at home. The other thing that some schools don't cover are the external female organs. So what compose the vulva? And that includes actually the urethra. So often the clitoris is not taught because here's the cool thing about the clitoris. Its only job is that it feels good when it is touched, which is kind of amazing. It's just filled with nerve endings. It doesn't have any other purpose. Can you imagine if you went through life having that part of your body that just felt good when it was touched and no one ever told you <laughs> and then you discovered it, but like no one told you. So you were like, oh, well, there must be something wrong with this. Well, there's nothing wrong with it. A lot of schools don't cover that. A lot of kids think that you get your period out of your urethra or the way they put it is, do I pee blood when I have my period? That's one of like the top three most common questions we get in our workshops. Another common question, how many holes do I have? How many holes? So you can say to your kids, if this feels like a difficult conversation and a wonderful health educator I know, Sue Steinberg says, you got three holes. <laughs> You got your urethra, you got your opening to your vagina, and wait for it, you got your anus. Anus always gets a very big laugh. And while the anus is not technically part of the vulva, it's down there. And by the way, it's very confusing for kids and some adults, which hole is which. 
So it's okay to make it funny. It's okay to be a little silly. It's okay to keep it really simple. But the goal is not to leave information out about basic anatomy. And maybe just to hammer home the point, we should add, for genetically female bodies, you've got three holes. For genetically male bodies, you've got two, right? So the urethra comes out of the tip of the penis and urine, pee, and sperm come out the same tube, the same hole. That's a fun conversation to have. (laughs) You talk about not being able to get a word in edgewise because the kids are rolling on the ground. But it's an important piece of information because just being able to label what your body has, it's very empowering. It's like 90% of the job is done once you've just labeled the body parts and explain what they do. One thing that's kind of amazing, Vanessa, I think the reason the clitoris is left off of so many curricula is that there is so much stigma in talking about masturbation. Yeah. And there are a lot of parents who are very nervous and uncomfortable about whether their school curriculum will cover masturbation. And it's very hard to imagine a conversation that identifies a part of the body whose only job is to feel good and not to have a conversation about masturbation. So do you want to talk about that for a sec? Yeah. I mean, what's interesting in our culture is it's not uncommon for people to talk about erections and even male masturbation and ejaculation because the penis plays both roles, the reproductive role and the feel-good role. Part of the reason, I mean, people, I think, are afraid of female sexuality, and there are thousands of years of religious and cultural history to go behind that. But one reason we're able to leave it out is because the clitoris does not have a reproductive function. So we don't need to talk about it if we're just talking about reproduction, but we can talk about it. I think it's hard to talk about masturbation because depending on where you come from, culturally, religiously, masturbation may be considered something that is not okay. And everyone comes from a different place. And if you come from a culture where it's not okay, you will decide how to talk to your child about that. I believe, and this is me speaking from the personal position, that if there are ways to make your body feel good, That's amazing. And we shouldn't hide that from our kids. Now, that doesn't mean we're teaching our children how to masturbate. The thing about your body feeling good by yourself or with a partner is that it's all about experimentation and trying things and looking how things work or don't work or feel or don't feel good. And that's part of a loving, caring sexual relationship. And one way to understand how your body feels good is if you try it on yourself First, it's really hard to tell your partner what feels good if you haven't figured it out on your own. So much of this goes to this fear that we all know is a myth and not true, but it is still a fear that education leads to sexual promiscuity. That sort of through line, right? The idea that if you introduce a concept, a kid will act on it is false. So it turns out, and we have said this on other podcast episodes, and we will continue to say it until we're blue in the face. The data is very clear that kids who have information and 
have names for anatomical parts, those kids tend to delay their sexual experimentation. And it's the kids who have less knowledge and less naming capacity who, and and I don't know what the direct line is. I can imagine what it is, but it's just a correlation. The less you know, the more likely you are to experiment early. And of course, why do we want to delay sexual experimentation? Well, we want to delay it because number one, pregnancy, right? For people who are having heterosexual sex. Number two, sexually transmitted infections and the risk there. Number three, the risk, especially among very young kids who are experimenting with sex of being in abusive relationships with either older partners or partners who have predatory behavior. So there are lots of reasons. We're not saying never have sex, but what we're saying is the goal here for everyone, every single person who's going to educate a kid about sex and sexuality, the goal is to help kids make better choices for themselves to keep themselves safe. And so if you're nervous about having these conversations, you can file in the back of your mind the fact that study after study after study will show that the conversations help protect your kids. And not just keeping them safe, but also helping them find ways to have loving, meaningful, fulfilling relationships, both emotionally and physically. And one important thing to think about, which is a big shift for people of our generation who are raising kids now, when we grew up, the assumption was heteronormative, that middle school and high school relationships were between males and females, and that people could be divided as boys and girls. Which, of course, wasn't true then either. Which wasn't true (laughs) then, which I'm sure kept many, many kids hiding their identities, their desires, their relationships. So the goal in this generation is to use inclusive language, not to assume that our kids are only in heterosexual relationships, not to assume and not to push back if our kids are talking about their gender identity, but to make our homes a place where everyone is included and welcome so that they can go on their own journey. So some examples of that is, I might be curious, is my kid interested in someone else romantically? It's seventh grade, I'm noticing they're a couple years into puberty, I'm wondering... Instead of saying to my kid, oh, this is my son. Are there any girls that you like? What do you think? Are you in love? Isn't she pretty? I might say to my kid, hey, is there anyone in school that you're interested in that you might like more than a friend? Right? I'm not using any fancy terminology, anything complex. I'm just taking the gender assumptions out of that conversation. So it's interesting that you frame it that way because this brings up another really important thing that kids need to know in the tween years. And that is the difference between having a romantic feeling and acting on a romantic feeling. So Vanessa, what would it sound like to ask a 10-year-old how they feel romantically versus if they want to act on Mm. that feeling. Because sometimes, you know, I think understandably, parents want the first, but they don't want to encourage the second. Right. So I'm a 10-year-old and help walk us through what the right way to ask me if I have new feelings about someone might sound like. One example. 
Yeah. I mean, I think one way to do it is, hey, I noticed that you spent a lot of time on the phone with that person. Like, describe to me what your relationship's like. So that's amazing. No, you haven't told them how they feel. You've actually opened the door, right? Because my first instinct might be to say, do you have a crush? Oh, is he your boyfriend? Right. Right? And also, even if we're not using that language, our relatives or adults in our kid's family might be using that language. So they might show up at Thanksgiving dinner and the your child who may have a same-sex romantic feelings for another kid, and yet their uncle says, oh, any girlfriends these days? Well, no, because they have boyfriends, right? And so we want to be sensitive, not only in our own homes, but to say to those relatives, hey, you know what? In our family, we actually don't assume that all kids are in heterosexual relationships, or, you know, we're not going to out our kid or assume anything about our kid, but we're going to make it a safe environment. So then that leads us to the second question about acting on feelings. And the reason that this is important to simply acknowledge in this conversation is that the difference between eight and 12 is massive. Big. It's four. <laughs> it's it's very big. It's four, yeah. but it could be as much as like 10 it, in terms of life experience. Right. So an eight-year-old Uh, A typical eight-year-old is actually not going to want to act on romantic feelings in the same way that a typical 12-year-old might. It is very common to hear 12-year-olds talk about dating, dating one another. I have a boyfriend. I have a girlfriend. Holding hands, texting each other little love notes. It's typical behavior by the end of the tween years. And so let's talk a little bit about what it looks like to help a child figure out how to act on those feelings or not. And I think really where I'm going with this is let's talk about consent. So we can assume that our kids who are having romantic feelings and have some independence and are spending time with other kids are actually acting on it in any sexual way. It's pretty common that they just want to spend time together and feel those special feelings without actually doing anything about it. That is so important. I I just think to pause there for one second, That is so important. It is more common for kids to just want the feeling of butterflies in their stomach. That is enough. And then as we move forward and we notice, okay, they're going to parties where people are spending time together on a Saturday night, we might say something like, hey, sometimes when you have special feelings for someone, you want to be with them in a different way than you are with your friends. So maybe that's kissing, maybe that's touching. And we don't have to give them the instructions or the guidebook except to say that it is our responsibility to ask for consent. And we don't even have to say consent. We can say, hey, you have to ask permission to touch someone else's body and they need to ask permission to touch yours. That's right. And let's just hold for a moment on this idea that If you don't have these conversations, if you as a parent or an adult who's helping raise a child is squirming at the notion of having these conversations, it's understandable, but then you have not opened the door for your kid to have those conversations with you. So if you're a parent who does want to be involved in the sort of emotional wellness of your kid, 
on the romantic side of their life. If you're someone who imagines that when your kid is an older teenager, they will talk to you about those relationships, the tween years are an amazing time to lay the foundation for that relationship. Because if you have trouble asking about holding hands or maybe kissing, it's a big leap to get to other topics as your kids get older. So it's a building block to the conversation. And Cara, what does the conversation sound like when we do talk to kids this age about sex, the act of sex? Well, let's start with the fact that we must talk with kids this age about sex. And we're not contextualizing it around them. This is not a conversation of, if you want to have sex, here are the mechanics. This is a conversation of, As you get older, it's really important for you to know this information about sex because one day you're going to become sexually active and I want you informed. I want you to have all the best information so that you can make decisions that, as you said, make you feel good, right? So what does it look like? Can you repeat, we did this in the school age episode. I want you to repeat now for this tween episode laying out the four kinds of sex. Yeah, so this is how I teach it in a classroom and it works beautifully because it lays out definitions and then opens the door for any question a kid has. So what I say is I say, I'm gonna teach you about sex. And there are four kinds of sex. There is vaginal intercourse, which is when a penis goes inside a vagina. There is anal intercourse, which is where a penis or maybe fingers go inside an anus. There is oral intercourse, which is where maybe a penis or a vagina goes inside a mouth. And there is what I call sex with yourself or self-pleasure, which is masturbation. And I lay out those terms slowly to let the kids digest the words. And then I say, Now, what questions do you have for me? And it's, Vanessa, it's a really, really hard conversation to have. Really hard. It's easier to have it at the front of a classroom with a bunch of kids you don't know than it is with your own child. So this is an amazing one to have without looking at each other because... Go for a walk. Go for a walk. Get in the car. Sit back to back on a floor like you... And I love it because you always describe... Share with them how nervous you are yes. before, right? Like, do your thing. What would your preamble be? Um, it might be something like, hey, dude, this is really hard for me, but it's also really important that I tell you this. So I'm going to explain to you the four ways that people can have sex. I'm going to mess it up. I'm sweating. I'm super nervous. My voice might even shake, but I need you to have this information. So here we go. <laughs> And if you don't feel ready to describe all four ways, or maybe you don't believe it's important that you describe all four ways, you can say to your kid, one way people have sex is X. And just pick one and come back a week later. I just thought of another great situation in which to talk to your kids about this kind of stuff is when you're doing a puzzle. Excellent. Because you're together and you're shoulder to shoulder. Frustrated. And you're already in a (laughs) shitty mood and you can talk without looking at each other. So Kara's language is inclusive. 
It also destigmatizes super common things that lots of people do, but nobody talks about, like masturbation. She doesn't go down the rabbit hole. She's not telling them that 20 different ways that people can have oral sex. It's basic, clear, and concise. But by the end of the tween years, kids do need to know that the only form of sex that can result in pregnancy is vaginal intercourse. And that has to be taught to them. They have to understand that. And they also need to understand that every form of sex except masturbation can result in the transmission of sexually transmitted infections, STIs, which can cause STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. So those two things are really important for kids to learn. That often gets outsourced to the school. It's often confusing to kids, and some of them don't really get it the first time they hear it. So that may be a follow-up question that a kid asks. I'm going to tell a story. Okay, go. (laughs) Recently, I took my 11-year-old to see a comedian, not my brother, and the comedian was talking about blowjobs. And my 11-year-old was giggling and we left and he was like, blowjob, blowjob, blowjob. And I looked at him and I said, hey, dude, do you know what a blowjob is? And he said, not really, right? (laughs) So he had all the appearance of knowing exactly what was going on and he did not know what was going on. And so I said to him, it's when a person puts another person's penis in their mouth. And he looked at me and he said, oh, why would anybody want to do that? Why would anyone want to put it in their mouth? Why would anyone want to put their penis in someone else's mouth? He said, oh, God. And I said, that is totally normal that you have that reaction. When you get older, you might have a different feeling about it. But that tells me that that's not something that you're ready to do. And that's totally fine. I just want you to know what it is because you heard the words. You know what I love about that story? I mean, I love so many things about that story, but we always say grab the teachable teachable moment. My God, Vanessa, you grabbed the teachable moment. You made it unfunny. Now, someone might have said, what are you doing with your kid in an all-ages show where they talk about blowjobs? Fair point, fourth child. That's all I'm going to say. But, you know, let's let's kind of come full circle from where we started the conversation because when we led off, what we said was, that one of the reasons that it's so important to have these conversations is the exposure to pornography. And so we keep promising to have an episode on porn. We will have more than one episode on porn. This is not that episode. But I want to close the loop on that concept so that parents and the adults involved in kids' lives feel empowered to have these conversations. Vanessa, do you want to walk us through the average age for first porn viewing and where kids will get their sexual education if it's not from you and not from their school? So we think that the average age of first exposure to porn is around 11, but that is pre-pandemic data. So what we don't know is after two years of being on their screens nonstop, what has the average age for males become? Females are not far behind that. So if these kids aren't having sex ed in school until fifth or sixth grade, and they're spending more time on their screens, and they're getting exposed to porn, which means they're seeing adults perform sexual acts with no context, no vocabulary, and no understanding, that isn't just quote-unquote inappropriate. It is frightening and confusing to kids. Right. And especially because free pornography 
which is what gets delivered to kids very intentionally. Okay. Free pornography is often violent and misogynistic and is the opposite of consensual loving sex. And at the end of all of this, we want to raise kids who are having great, happy sexual relationships when they're older. And so if their first exposure to understanding what sex is all about is some video that is violent and aggressive, or even if it's not violent and aggressive, it's just strangers having sex in front of them, you've lost an opportunity. And if your child has already seen porn and you have not had these conversations, take back the opportunity. Go out, start these conversations. But if you've got a younger tween who has not been exposed, our very strong recommendation is that you do something like this. You say, I'm going to talk to you about sex. And I know it's uncomfortable for you. Trust me, it's uncomfortable for me. But the thing is, if I don't, someone else will. And I don't know what information they're giving you. So I want to give you the best information I have and then let you know that any time you have questions or you hear or see something that's confusing to you, you can come check it with me. And if you do see porn, which is really common, I won't be mad. It's not your fault. But I'd really appreciate if you could come talk to me about what you saw so that I can help you process and understand and separate fact from fiction. And you need to define porn because we assume that our kids know what it is and they've heard the word and they know it's quote unquote a bad thing, but they don't necessarily know what it is. So if you use the word porn, you can say, hey, do you know what that is? Or have you heard the word pornography? And then they can give you some information or say, oh, not really. But kids feel like they're supposed to act like they know what things are, like my kid with the blowjob, when they don't. And it's our job to understand where we're meeting them and what their baseline is before we give them more information. So it's a lot. It's a lot to cover. I'm but exhausted. I'm exhausted. But it's a lot of years. <laughs> the tween years are long. It's a lot of years. And just remember, you can always go back if you mess it up, if you give misinformation, if you freak out and get nervous and like run out of the room. That's okay. Go back to your kid and say, hey, you know what? I messed this up. I'm really sorry. Let's try it again. This is hard for me. It might be awkward for you. Let's give it a shot, right? You always get a do-over. And it's never too late. So it's for never those too of late. you who haven't started, go. Here's your moment. Finish listening to this podcast and then go find your kid <laughs> and do a puzzle. Bye, Cara. Bye, Vanessa. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.